good evening everyone. Uh, if you weren't here this morning you're kind of wondering what the count me in and these lists are and these boards are all about. We were just uh, giving thanks to God this morning for all those who volunteer here at Windsor. Uh, we counted up something like over 140 volunteers, but there's lots of more opportunities to volunteer, so we didn't want you to miss out on that. So uh, this evening, if after the service you want to come up here and just find out where the opportunities are, uh, sign up and we will get in touch with you and let you know more. Then by all means, do that. Uh, I'd like to start this evening with lots of questions. I normally start with a question, but tonight I'm going to start with just lots of uh, questions. Do you ever look around or listen to news, read the paper, reflect on what's going on in our world today and wonder? Why do those involved, for example, or so many of those involved in awful things like human trafficking, why do they prosper? If you were here last week, we saw that short video where we heard that the CIA, CIA reckon that the sale of women around the world, now not pornography, not into prostitution, but just the sale of women around the world is something like the third biggest industry now. Why do people involved in that prosper? Why do they line their pockets, get away with it, rip families and people's dignity to shreds? Why? Why do drug barons live such affluent lives and yet leave a trail of destruction in their wake and rarely get caught or brought to justice? Crime pays, or so it seems. And why do those who have little or no time for God and godliness, why do they appear to do all right? In fact, better than all right, they're having a blast. Apparently living life to the max. And then on the flip side, what about those who are trying to live God's ways? Why do so many good people suffer? Struggle. Get it in the neck. Go through the mill. Do you ever wonder about those sort of things? Ever ask those kind of questions? I'll guarantee you most of us have. Maybe even still do. And whenever you're confronted and confused by injustice and all these sorts of issues, how does it make you feel? Frustrated, disillusioned, angry. And then where do you go with that? Where do you take your doubts and your questions? Who do you talk to? Who do you voice off to? And how do you find a way forward in all of it? Where do you go to discover an alternative perspective that brings some level of clarity and even hope? Is, is, is that possible? Well, tonight we come to a psalm that deals with and connects with so many of these kinds of questions. It's a prayer of someone who's struggling to come to terms with faith in the real world. Someone who initially cannot get their head round the fact that people who are proud, people who are violent, people who are malicious, people who are oppressive seem to be doing okay. Whereas many of those who are faithful to God suffer and struggle in life. Just ask the question, where's the justice in that? How is that 
fair. And this tension and this injustice and this observation actually almost pushes this psalmist over the edge. Almost causes him to abandon his faith. To walk away. To give up. But as we look at this honest to God prayer, we're taken on a journey. It's a really important journey. A journey, according to one writer, that helps us transition from radical doubt to a robust affirmation of faith. And for me, that is a journey worth taking. And tonight we come to to a psalm and a prayer that actually enables us or helps us or encourages us to be honest with God that provides a voice for our frustrations regarding the injustices we see around us but then helps us get a renewed appreciation and confidence in God and in the Christian faith. Now for anybody who is uh, visiting this evening, we're in the middle of a series called Deep Christ, a deeper series encouraging us as Christians to rediscover the ancient yet contemporary practice of praying the Psalms, where we take individual Psalms and we pray with them and we pray from them. And this evening we're going to consider Psalm 73. Uh, It's a relatively unique Psalm in the overall collection. Out of the 150, this one sort of stands out. And the reason it stands out is because for many people it's difficult to pin down. It's really hard to classify Psalm 73. Some people see it as a lament. Whereas others view it as a prayer of thanksgiving. If you have a copy of the handout I I gave uh, you a few weeks ago listing most of the Psalms in various categories, you'll see that I've categorized it as a wisdom prayer. But whatever the specific uh, genre The critical thing about Psalm 73 is that it needs to be prayed with and prayed from from on a regular basis because the prosperity of the wicked and the godless on the one hand versus the suffering of the righteous on the other is still a live issue. It remains a disturbing reality today. It still sends people's heads spinning. It still threatens to undermine and actually has undermined the faith of lots of people and so what I want to do is journey together through this psalm it's page 586 in the Bibles in the pews and if you can have a copy of God's word in front of you it would be really helpful because it's quite a long psalm and we're going to be just journeying through it but it starts with this familiar and this basic declaration of faith God is good That's what we believe, isn't it? God is good. That he's good to his people. That he's good to those who are pure in heart. And we sing about that. And we talk about it. And we preach about it. And yet there are times and there are moments whenever nagging doubts creep in. Or maybe it's just me. When something negative happens somewhere to someone who is a child of God and it throws us because if God is so good then why are they having to deal with that and cope with that whereas others who have no time for God are consistently living the easy life seems so unfair and this praying psalmist is there 
And verse 2 reveals it. But as for me. In other words, hang on a minute. I'm struggling with this thought. I have a bit of a problem with that opening statement. And as he continues to pray, he admits, and if you look at verse 2 there, he admits that it's almost taken his legs from under him. This is threatened, this is threatening to trip him up. This just might throw him off balance. This may unsettle his faith. But as for me, he says, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. God is good. But as for me. And before we find out why he's wrestling or querying the goodness of God, let me just make a few brief comments right from the outset that kind of hopefully will help us continue to engage with this. The first is this. Who is it that's actually praying this prayer? Who is the me in this phrase, but as for me? Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, it says under Psalm 73 that this is a psalm of Asaph. Leads to an obvious question. Who's he? What do we know about him? Anybody want to tell me what they know about Asaph? Very learned man, exactly. Yeah. Let me give you a brief biog that's, that builds on that. According to God's word, he was a key player in leading praise. Might have even been the director of Israel's choir under David's kingship. God's word also tells us that he spoke as a prophet. He was a seer. He wrote quite a few inspired prayers and songs, including Psalm 50. This one, Psalm 73, 74, 75, 76, 77, 78, 79, 80, 81, 82 and 83. And as you piece together a little of a story, you discover that he was, as one commentator has written, a godly man, a skilled musician, a learned, knowledgeable theologian. And the point here for me is this. That we can take a certain amount of encouragement in the fact that a man of Asaph's pedigree and status and insight and experience struggled with these issues. And I know you could say it's a wee bit perverse of me, but there's something reassuring about realising and recognising that so-called giants of the faith did have questions. That they did have significant doubts. That they did wonder at times what is going on. That they did query God's goodness on occasions. That takes me to the second comment. That doubts and questions along these lines are part and parcel of human experience and Christian discipleship. Treasure the questions. Treasure the questions because questions take you on a journey of discovery. And don't deny your doubts. Because when you ignore those, if you suppress those, if you never articulate those, it will only deepen the confusion and the frustration. But following on from that and linked intimately to that is my third comment, which is this. Take your questions and doubts to God in prayer. 
That's what Asaf did, and it's a brilliant model. I'm not saying we should never ask questions or express our doubts to others, but we need to be wise in that. And I I will say more about that in a moment. The vital issue here is that we pray and that we are honest to God in our prayers. But let's go back to the text. Because in verses 3 to 14, you scan down them with me, we discover the source of his questions and doubt. And it is the issue of the prosperity of the wicked versus the suffering of the righteous. That's why he's querying God's goodness. That's why he says, but as for me. And he starts with the wicked. And he sees them prosper despite how messed up they are. Now, wicked might be the sort of general catch-all phrase, but in his prayer, he actually specifies their behavior. He names their attitude. Look at verses 6 to 9. He says they're pretentious. They're arrogant. They're cruel. They're greedy. They lie. They have no moral framework. Anything goes. They voice off. They threaten oppression. But what really bothers the psalmist is there are no consequences. There are no repercussions. There's no kickback. And that is so hard to accept. It's so hard to take. And so he talks about the fact, and look at verses 4 and 5, he talks about the fact, see these wicked people, they have no struggles. They're strong. They're healthy. They don't seem to have a care in the world. The hassles and the burdens that other people have to contend with, they are alien. They're foreign to these wicked people. They have an easy life. It's no wonder they're proud. They're getting away with blue murder, we might say. And all of this grates on the psalmist. It seems so unfair. It makes no sense to him. And into the bargain, have a look at this. These people dismiss God. They just write God off. They barely acknowledge him. They certainly don't fear him. Look at verse 11. They say, that is the wicked say, How would God know? Does the Most High know anything? There's contempt for God. There's ridicule. There's irreverence. These people, it would seem, don't need God. They're totally self-reliant, autonomous. God doesn't feature. And guess what? This is what's sticking in his throat. They're doing really well. Look at verse 12. This is what the wicked are like, he says. They're carefree and they're getting richer by the day. How does that work, God? Why does that work? Where is the justice in that? And then he considers the righteous. And this only rubs salt into his wounds. Look at verses 13 and 14. He, the psalmist, Asaph, the Christian, he has, in total contrast to the wicked, he's been trying to do the right thing. He's been trying to live a moral life. He's been trying to pursue purity. He's been trying to stay faithful. And for what reason, he says, to quote his own words, Surely, in vain, I have kept my heart pure. And I have washed my hands in innocence. In other words, what was the point? Because look at what has happened to me, God. Verse 14, all day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishment. Why, oh why, God, do bad things happen to good, upright people And good things happen to bad, messed up people. Do you ever feel like that? 
this man of God definitely did. Do those thoughts ever cross your mind? Well, these thoughts weighed heavily on his mind. But some of you might have noticed that I missed a key part of verse 3. I actually missed the first part. And it's refreshingly honest, although if not slightly disturbing. Because here you discover the real cause and concern of his doubts and confusion. He was jealous of the wicked. That's what it says here. In fact, it doesn't say he was jealous of the wicked. He was jealous of how well off they were. Look at what he writes. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. That is a huge confession and admission. And I wonder how many of us, how many Christians have been there jealous of the affluent, carefree lifestyle of certain non-Christians. Which at times, this carefree, affluent lifestyle, at some levels, it appears to work. And if nothing else, this section of Psalm 73 reveals that those thoughts that I have at times are not entirely left field. They're not entirely out of order or inexcusable. And even from that perspective, I find this psalm a real godsend and a help to my prayer life. Because I know there are times I'm here. And this week of human trafficking, whenever I've read so much and, and been confronted with so much information about it, I just wonder, why God, why do the wicked prosper? And yet so many innocent people suffer. But this psalm doesn't end at verse 14. And we must never, ever, please hear, we must never stop there. This is one of those passages of scripture that needs to be seen through to the end. This must be read in its entirety because if you don't read Psalm 73 in its entirety, you reduce its potency and you restrict its influence. Because in verses 15 to 17, we come to a significant tipping point. Asaph realizes that if he's left to his own devices, he's never going to understand this. He's never going to make sense of it. This is going to wreck his head. Plus he also admits and realizes that simply broadcasting how he feels to all and sundry is probably not a great idea. Which is back to something I mentioned earlier. You've got to be sensible and wise about who you talk to and voice off to. That's what he's saying here. But look at verse 17. Because the resolution to this conflict, the way forward, takes place, hear this, in the context of worship. And I cannot overemphasize this. It is whenever Asaph enters the sanctuary. In other words, it's whenever he draws near to God that he discovers fresh insight. If you, if you hear nothing else tonight, please hear that. It's whenever you draw near to God in worship that you discover fresh insight. According to one writer, worship has given Asaph the true scales on which he should weigh the experiences of life. Or to put it another way, it's drawing near to God in worship that brings him back to his senses and restores equilibrium. 
It's as he worships, it's as he gathers with others to worship, there's a communal dimension to this, that he is able to see through a different lens, a corrective lens, and we must never underestimate the vitality of worship. And one of the key lessons for me that flows out of this psalm and out of this prayer is that as you struggle with those questions, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the innocent suffer? It's why you have those doubts that you must never make the mistake of disconnecting from worship as so many people do. Don't neglect the place of worship when you have questions or doubts. Don't refrain from gathering with others to worship despite how you feel at times. Whether you're frustrated, wound up, confused or angry about the injustices you see around you. It is imperative that you continue to draw near to God and worship. And Asaph does that. And as a result... He sees differently. His envy-blurred vision is corrected. His thinking is realigned. You see, there's no doubt that this is a psalmist who is disorientated. But here, in the place and context of worship, he experiences reorientation. With respect to three things. And I came across this during the week. I found it so helpful and I just want to share it with you tonight. First off, he experiences reorientation with respect to the wicked. Look at verses 18 to 20. You see, in verse 2, Asa thought he was on a slippery slope. The reality is, it's the wicked who are in fact sliding towards a frightening destiny. That's what he discovers here in the context of worship. It's the wicked who are not in a good place. Despite all the appearances, they may appear to be prospering. But appearances can be deceiving. Justice will ultimately be done. And if you've got a New Living Translation of the Bible, verse 20 gives us the implication that actually God will have the last laugh. And we might think and we might feel so many people are getting away with it. So many people are operating, they're living under the radar. The truth is... That from a long-term eternal perspective, there is a day of reckoning to be faced by every single human being. They're going to have to stand before God. And they're going to have to give an account. And then justice will be served. Secondly, Asaph experiences reorientation with respect to himself. Look at verses 21-22. He recognizes that his heart's not in a good place. He actually says, do you know something, my heart's bitter. Do you ever get to that place when your heart's bitter? He effectively confesses here that his envy of the arrogant was completely wrong. He says, I was foolish. I'm ignorant. In fact, and this is pretty strong, he says he got on like a dumb ox. It's there in this text. You know, sometimes, so often the truth is that our thinking is bang out of order. My thinking needs to be challenged. And so we desperately need that ongoing transformation of the mind. And it was in the place of worship that Asaph had that experience. He's reorientated with respect to himself. My heart's not right, God. And then thirdly, 
He experiences reorientation with respect to God's presence. Look at verse 23 to 26. You see, despite the fact that he felt he was slipping, he was stumbling, that somehow God had let go of him, it turns out that God had a tight grip of him. Look at verse 23. You hold me by my right hand, God. And Asaph discovers here that faith depends not on our fragile, often vulnerable grasp of God, but on God's grasp of him. Read that over to yourself. Faith depends not on our fragile, often vulnerable grasp of God, but on God's grasp of us. You see, Asaph realizes here that not only has God got hold of him, but also, look at it, God is there to guide And he's there to guide not only in this life, but forever and ever and ever and ever. That's what it says. The wicked, he knows now, are heading for a disturbing destiny. But his final destiny is radically different. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Amazing. Asaph's perception of reality has totally changed. It has undergone reorientation. He sees the wicked differently. They might appear to be prospering now, but this will not last. He sees himself differently. He hasn't got it right. He doesn't have to entertain envy or total frustration with the way he sees things. And he sees God differently. God is in control. God is intimately near. He's got him by his right hand. God is trustworthy. And so as a result of taking this to God in prayer, as a result of drawing near to God in worship, he is able to say at the end of verse 25, God, I desire you more than anything on earth. Do you know, the wicked might seem to be rich. They might seem to be carefree. They might seem to be getting richer. But the truth is, the fact is that nothing is more valuable. Nothing is more precious than knowing and being in relationship with Almighty God. I desire you, God, more than anything in earth. Is that the cry of my heart? I hope and pray it is. I hope and pray it can be the cry of our hearts, even in the midst of our questioning, even in the midst of our doubts. And Psalm 73, for me, tells us it can be. It can be. And as Asaph reaches the end of the prayer, he comes to the end of this journey of his heart, and this has been a journey of the heart. But as he reaches the end of this journey of the heart, he comes in a full circle. And in the final verse, we come to the second, but as for me. Full circle. Only this time, unlike verse two, it's not a cry of concern because he feels himself slipping away. It's a cry of praise. Because this is what he says, but as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter, my refuge, and I will tell every one of the wonderful things you do. You see, it turns out for Asaph that the opening declaration is true. God is good. He is good. And as I brought my questions to him, as I brought my doubts, and as I prayed them through, and as I was honest with him in prayer, and as I came to that place of worship, as I drew near to God in worship, I discovered reorientation with regard to the wicked, with regard to myself, with regard to God's presence. And therefore I desire him more than anything on earth. 
more than anything on earth. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. He is my refuge. And I'm going to go out there and I'm going to tell everybody of the wonderful things he does. It's just such a brilliant journey of the heart. It's a journey I encourage all of you to take. From engagement with God, it's verse 1. You're great God, but as for me. So it's engagement with God, to struggle against God, to reverent worship before God, to celebrating the close proximity of God, to wanting to tell others about God. Can I invite you to pray with and pray from Psalm 73 this week? And may God help us.